The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. As a steady diet, as a church, we want to work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, cover to cover. And that's what we've been doing through the Gospel of Matthew. We took a three-week break to lay out the DNA of our church, the Emmanuel Baptist Church DNA, a theological vision to delight in Jesus, to display Jesus, and to declare Jesus. But now we return to the Gospel of Matthew. And on purpose, I left off where we had done the narrative part of Jesus' life, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Chapter 1, the birth of Jesus. He's called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. Chapter 2, the kingship of Jesus. He's the only king worthy of worship that won't destroy you eventually. Chapter 3, Jesus is the one on whom the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, on whom the Spirit satisfyingly rests. Chapter 4, Jesus is the only person who ever perfectly resisted the devil. But now after four chapters of the story of Jesus' life, now in chapter five, we have the teaching of Jesus, beginning with probably the most famous sermon in all of human history. Probably more has been written about the Sermon on the Mount than any other sermon that anyone's ever preached. I've read really interesting commentary by Karl Marx, by Gandhi, by previous presidents of the United States, by Martin Luther. And I'll share some of those comments over the weeks ahead. But today, I think the best introduction into the way people have thought about the Sermon on the Mount was given in 1987 at Texas A&M University. At that university, Virginia Stem Owens was serving as the professor of literature, and she assigned the Sermon on the, on the Mount to her Texas A&M students for her class reading. And the responses that she saw in her papers were rather insightful. The first paper she read on the assigned reading, the Sermon on the Mount, said this, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. And Virginia Stan Owens said, I was mildly surprised since this came from a student who had never expressed a single iconoclastic notion the entire semester. But then I glanced at the next paper. The next student's paper said this, there's an old saying, you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. She went on to her third paper, thinking maybe this was a fluke, and the third student's paper said this, it's hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago. And so Virginia Stem Owen write in her excellent article, God and Man at Texas A&M, she said, at this point, I put down my red pen. This was not a fluke. This was a major trend. And so she asked herself, why were these students, A, so angry at the Sermon on the Mount, or B, so blithe in their dismissal of it? Another one of her student papers said this, and I'm quoting. The student wrote, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman with lust is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Virginia Stem Owens wrote, at this point, I began to be encouraged. There's something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. <laughs> These pristine responses to the Sermon on the Mount are actually helpful because they reveal the way the Sermon on the Mount was always meant to be heard. It is actually meant to be something that uh, changes the way you live, which is why one of the other students wrote it something that is terrible. 
The other student wrote this, and Stem Owens called it the most disconcerting assessment of all of her students. This student wrote, in this essay, the author, Jesus, explains the doctrines of an era in the past which cannot be brought into the future. The essay now can't be taken in the same way it was written. Maybe it can only be used as a guideline for good manners. (laughs) And Stem Owens wrote, good manners, as if the Sermon on the Mount was suggested by Emily Post, (laughs) but the Sermon on the Mount is more than that. And so as Stem Owens concludes, I find it strangely heartening in her experiment at Texas A&M that except for the one young man who thought the Sermon on the Mount was just a guide to good manners, the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears just as it was in the first century. Now this is actually very good news for us because in America today, since 1987, when this was given to Texas students who are from parochial uh, Bible Belt culture, cultural Christianity is dying really fast in America, which is actually a great thing. Because now, instead of all the cloying cultural Christianity that causes us to easily swallow what actually isn't biblical truth, we now finally get to feel the rough edges of the real Bible, the way they were intended to be heard. So the Sermon on the Mount has tough edges, and that's because it's the truth. (laughs) And so when people read it and know what it really means, typically they hate it, they find it unrealistic, or they think maybe at best it's a guide to good manners or ethics. I've read serious theological commentaries that are ostensibly Christian that argue that the Sermon on the Mount can't be applicable to us. Maybe it's just for the future. Maybe it's just for the past, but surely they find some way to avoid that what Jesus is saying could actually affect me. But actually, this sermon was always difficult to hear. I want you to see that from the Bible. Look in Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is something Jesus preached many times. That's why it's recorded separately in the other Gospels with some slight variation. But you know what's repeated every time he preached it? Where he preached it. He always preached it on a mountain, on a mountainside. Why? Why did he preach it on a mountainside? Why did he preach it to some disciples, but largely crowds on a mountain? Here's why, I'll quote Tim Keller. These mountains had the very same function that mountains have had for centuries. If you were a revolutionary or wanted to bring in a new kingdom or new administration, you were a hunted man, so you would hide out in the mountains. Just as the revolutionaries hide in the mountains, so Jesus Christ goes to the mountains because he's bringing about a revolution. You see, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is preaching about is nothing like the kingdom of this world, and that's why you can only share it in the mountains. In fact, if I was to preach this sermon the way it's actually intended, but instead of preaching it here, I tried to preach it in a place of power this morning, like the Capitol, or DC, or some place where any political party, I don't care which one it is, a place where people have power and influence. And I told them what Jesus actually says, lay down your power, give up your illusion of control, die to your self-autonomy. They would hate it too. Because when you actually grasp the Sermon on the Mount, it is a call for this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, to crumble. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, to dawn. It is totally unlike this world. Now let me make this point 
Very, very clear at the beginning because Jesus is very clear about it. Every one of us here, watching at home, watching in other places in the building, every one of us right now are either in the kingdom of heaven or we are in the kingdom of this world. There is no middle ground. Every one of us is either in the kingdom of light or according to Colossians 1.13, we're in the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus Christ is trying to usher in the kingdom that we need. And for thousands of years, people have hated what he had to say. But what he has to say is the only hope for our salvation. What he offers here is the kingdom we all need. In fact, I love the way Colossians says it. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and ushered us into the light of the kingdom of his son. So this morning, you're either a citizen of one or the other. And if you don't know which one you're in, you're probably in the kingdom of this world. It's called darkness for a reason because you don't realize you're in it, okay? Now, on the notes that I emailed you, I made a word table, a table that has a chart of the kingdom of heaven qualities and the kingdom of this world qualities. But if you don't have the notes, that's okay. You can read that later. Here's what I'm gonna do this morning to make it as easy to follow as possible. First, we're gonna do a flyover of all eight of these Beatitudes, and we're gonna show how differently they're viewed in the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of this world. Now that flyover is gonna be fast. <laughs> then we're gonna land the plane and show the beauty of each one of these Beatitudes. First, the flyover. Look at the first contrast. This is in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does this world tell us to be poor in spirit? No, it tells us to be rich in spirit, or at least upper middle class in spirit. <laughs> this world tells us, believe in yourself. Put your best foot forward. Depend on yourself. Make a name for yourself. Make much of you. And that's the way all kingdoms in this world have always taught us. But Jesus says, no, repent of yourself. Refuse to rely on yourself and acknowledge your bankruptcy spiritually. All right, now the next one, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. You maybe saw in my notes that I'm arguing mourn over sin and I'll explain why later. For they shall be comforted. Wait, does this world that we think of as so normal, does it tell us to mourn over our sin? No, never. It tells us to hide our sin, excuse our sin, blame shift to somebody else who really must be the cause of our failure, rationalize, callous our conscience, deny, suppress, or even rewrite our own history. But Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes finds mercy. Jesus is saying the same thing. Verse five, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Does this world tell us to be meek? Does this kingdom tell us to be meek? No, it tells us to use cunning, manipulation, and coercion to get what you want. This world tells us that might makes right. And Jesus says, no, right actually makes might. This, the fourth one, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Does this world tell us to hunger and thirst? For righteousness? Is that presented as normal, a worthwhile pursuit of your life? Of course not. The world tells us that you're great just as you are. Don't let anyone shame you by considering the challenge that you might need to change. Now the fifth beatitude, verse seven, blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. This world, this kingdom tells us to avenge ourselves, to give people what's coming to them. If someone's hurt you, then, then they should experience the same level of pain you've been in. This word doesn't tell us. This world doesn't tell us to pursue mercy. Now the sixth beatitude, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Does this world tell us to be pure in our heart? No, we're, we're consistently told, well, it's not harming anybody. Whatever you think about privately, whatever you do in your own mind is your business. Whatever you do in your own heart is up to you. This world never tells us that we need a heart change. Now the seventh beatitude, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Our world doesn't tell us to make peace but to pretend that there's peace, which is quite different. The eighth beatitude, verse 10 and 11, blessed are those who are persecuted. This world tells us to live for comfort or to conform. Jesus tells us to know what it's like to go against the grain. In short, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, you know how the world works? This is how heaven works. You know how the world tells you to live? This is how actually you're made to live. He's showing the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven versus the way life works in the kingdom of this world. And when people know what Jesus is saying, people hate it. And so let me quote a British psychiatrist who wrote this. The spirit that permeates Christianity is in my opinion, masochism. And if you don't know what masochism is, it's like a sick pleasure in suffering. Here's what the psychiatrist goes on to say. The strongest expression of masochism is to be found in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. That sermon, Jesus blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted. He says to do good to people who hate you and forgive people's trespasses. And he concludes, all this breeds masochism. You see, people have always hated the Sermon on the Mount, if they understand what Jesus is really saying. And this morning, either you are in the kingdom of heaven or you're in the kingdom of this world. And in this sermon, Jesus pulls zero punches. He'll talk about lust. He'll talk about adultery. He'll talk about divorce. He'll talk about money. He'll talk about greed. He'll talk about hope. He'll talk about relationships. All of the things we want to avoid, he addresses all of them. But it's a wonderful, wonderful sermon. So now we're going to land the plane. And I want to do my best to show you why all eight of these Beatitudes are glorious. Now they're called Beatitudes for this reason. The Greek word makarios was translated by the Latin Vulgate, Beatitude, and a lot of our Christian vocabulary is from Latin. So beatitude means blessings. But what do blessings mean? There are eight blesseds here. What does the word mean? And here's, I think, the best definition I've read of it. To be blessed in this way means to be deeply satisfied. Now, I want to show you a pattern in case you didn't notice it when we went through all eight. Did you notice each time there's a blessed is this quality because it will receive this promise. Did you notice that? The word for is in the middle of every one of these verses. So blessed are those who by God's grace have this quality for or because they will receive this promise. Now each time it's a passive verb. They shall be or they will. That means somebody else is gifting them the promise and that somebody else is God. God gifts eight promises when these virtues are present. These are blessings from God that lead to deep satisfaction. One more thing I want you to, to notice here. 
that these blessings are abnormal and counterintuitive, but they come from God. So now we're ready to slow down and look at each one of them. So now number one, the first beatitude, the spiritually bankrupt who humbly asks for grace. Verse three, look at it with me, please. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, ble- the blessed, I have in black for you on the notes, the promise in red to make it as easy as possible. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for here's the promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does poor in spirit mean? It means exactly what it sounds like, to be spiritually poor, not meaning that you have little faith, meaning that you recognize that spiritually you're bankrupt, that you have nothing. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing because those are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now Jesus will make this point many times in various ways. Think of when he'll say something like this. I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but the great physician has come to call those who realize they're sick. Sinners who realize they need repentance. See, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now think about this for a second. How easy is that? Sounds so obvious, right? Wait, all I have to do to receive heaven is to realize that I'm poor in spirit, that I have nothing? Yes, it's a gift, it's all of grace. And yet, most people fall here because it's so hard to say I have nothing when you think you kind of have something. See, all God wants us to do is open our hand and admit that we have nothing. But see, it's hard to open your hand when you're clutching a personal bill of rights or personal freedom or personal accomplishment or personal possessions or my personal moral goodness. See, as long as you think you have something, you'll never have the kingdom. You'll remain in the kingdom of this world. The kingdom is not for people who say, you know what, God, I have a little bit of my own. The kingdom is for people who say, God, apart from you, I have nothing and I am nothing. I come to you for everything. See, the kingdom is for those who open their hand. It begins with the poor in spirit and the promise for them is the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice it's in the present? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me point out something very interesting. One more grammatical detail for you. The first beatitude and the eighth are in the present tense. Go ahead and check and make sure I'm right. Verse three, the kingdom is, verse 10 through 12, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But did you notice the tense of all the middle ones? They're all future. There's shall be comforted. You shall be encouraged. So why is that? Why is it bookended by two things that are presently true and all six in the middle are future promises? Why is that? I think there are two reasons. Let me explain them. The first, the first reason you bookend present and present and put all the future in the middle is to show that these all stand as a unit. There's another time the Bible does this. In Galatians 5, we read about the fruit singular of the Spirit meaning that they're not multiple fruits. You can't go to the produce company and say, well, I like this one <laughs> and I like that one, but I don't like those ones. And the same is true with these qualities of the kingdom. They're all true or you're not part of the kingdom. These are all things that God is doing in you or you're not yet part of the kingdom of heaven. But there's another reason that they're both present and future. And here's the other reason. Because these are guarantees that will all happen 
but they don't all happen at once, you see? They're guarantees that will all happen, but they don't all get received immediately. There's a sense in which some of these are true in part today, but they will be in full on the final day, you see? So now that we know that, we're ready for the second one. The spiritually sorrowful, those who mourn over sin. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Perhaps the first question you have is, Josh, why are you saying those who mourn over sin? The text doesn't specifically address sin. Here's the answer. In the Bible, all mourning, all true sadness is related to sin. It is related to sin in one of two senses. It is either related to sin, the activity of sin, when we desire or think or speak or do sinful things, or it is related to the curse of sin, sin's effects in the world. Let me explain them both. You may mourn over sin that is done to you or against you. Someone has sinned against you. Someone has mistreated you. You, in one sense, are abused. That is something you mourn over. You may then mourn over sin that you are doing. Perhaps a pattern of sin that's been in your life for a very long time that you can't seem to break and now you're very heavy hearted over it. Sin that you're doing. But there's a second category. You may mourn over the curse of sin. Now the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that when God made the world, it was good. But when Adam and Eve sinned, it's like there's a flaw in the system now and things don't work the way they're supposed to. So if you're sitting at the bedside of someone who's dying with cancer, you mourn over the curse of sin, over the fact that sin has just ruined the way the world is supposed to work. Now notice then the glorious promise in this verse. If you mourn over sin, notice what Christ promises. You will be comforted. So let me encourage you this morning. If you are mourning over sin that's been done to you, Christ will comfort you. He will comfort you in part now, but one day he will wipe every tear from your eyes. If you're mourning over sin in your own life, a pattern that you can't seem to break, Christ will comfort you in part now, but one day he will glorify you from even sin's presence and the battle will be over. If you're mourning over sin's curse, watching people die, watching people suffer, watching people being sick, maybe a sickness in your own body, you will be comforted in part now, but in whole then, because he has conquered sin and death. This means that we as Christians think differently about mourning and comfort than non-Christians do. Let me speak carefully about this. I as a pastor, have been at the bedside and the funeral of loved members who I've watched die of diseases like cancer and then preached for their funeral. I've noticed though that the way the world talks about cancer is not quite the way that Christ talks about cancer. Often when the world talks about cancer, it'll talk about how we are going to stand up to cancer. We are going to fight cancer. We are going to defeat cancer as if somehow we are going to make that change. Or when the Bible talks about cancer, or when it talks about sickness, it talks about a curse that Christ alone will finally reverse. Just yesterday, I was listening to Pastor Tim Keller, a pastor that's affected me in positive ways for years. He is now in his 70s, and he has pancreatic cancer, and he is going to die soon. 
Every two weeks he has chemotherapy and he and his wife have been trying to work through that process. And just yesterday when I was listening to him, he was saying that often he'll meet people from around the country and they'll say, hey, we're, you know, we're really praying for you as you battle cancer and as you fight cancer. And Tim said, I, I don't correct them when they say that, but I always think I, 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 don't, I wouldn't use that word in. I'm not battling cancer. I'm not fighting cancer. The one thing the Bible tells me to fight is my sin. And that is something that God is helping to expose to me. But in the end, I won't fight or win against death or suffering, but Jesus will. See, so blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you have the humility to look to Christ, you will be comforted. But let me say a a precise application point here. We may mourn over the curse of sin, We may mourn over when sin has been done to us, but brother, sister, let me encourage you this morning. When have you last mourned over the sin in you? I was with some men a year or so ago, and we were sitting down for a men's Bible study, and one of the men was very combative, very acerbic, and just really fighting with with everyone. And, And then one of the older men said to him, brother, maybe the best thing you could do is go home and get alone and pray until you feel badly about your own sin rather than observing it so acutely in everybody else. And it was a good reminder for him and a good reminder for us all. So stop and think for a second. When was the last time you felt a heavy weight over your own sinfulness? It came crashing home to you, your desperate need to be comforted for the sin in your own life. Now here's an encouragement for you. That convicting work of the spirit is always meant to lead you to comfort. Because though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And so actually it is healing for us to say, God, I did not know how sinful I am, but now I know even better how gracious you are. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now the third quality, the spiritually sweet, who are gentle and not forceful. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Few words have been misunderstood more than meek, I think. We hear the word meek, we think of a wallflower. We think of someone who's terribly boring. (laughs) We think of someone who you don't want to be around. But the word meek is not a disposition, it's a discipline. It's not a temperament, it's temperance. It's not a personality type, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's something that you can have a big personality or a small personality, that's not meekness. Meekness is the commitment to doing what is right with other people, even if it's not immediately expedient. Meekness is when you won't bend things to your direction through your own might and pragmatism to accomplish what you want. Meekness then trust and power that's not yours. Meekness is humility relationally. And notice the promise. Blessed are the meek because what will the meek receive from God? They will inherit the earth. We know from the rest of the Bible he means the new earth. Isn't that ironic, right? Because in this world we're told, hey, don't, don't be meek. Hustle, brand yourself, put yourself out there, assert yourself, bend ethics to get ahead. That's the only way to gain the world. And Jesus says, actually, if you want to walk on the new earth, you can't be that way. The new earth isn't for people who are 
personal PR brand hustlers. <laughs> New earth is for people who realize they have no strength, but they look to God for it. The fourth beatitude is the spiritually insatiable. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst speak to your controlling desire. What do you long for? What do you want? What do you crave? Now, of course, we know, and Jesus knew when he took on flesh that when you're hungry and you eat, you're only satisfied for a short time and then you're hungry again. When you're thirsty, you drink. You're satisfied for a short time and then you're thirsty again. But notice what this verse promises. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be eternally satisfied. This is why Jesus often in his ministry will say that he is the bread of life or that he is living water. There is someone that will be satisfying throughout eternity. What a promise it is to say you would be full when we've never known what it means to be full. But there is a hunger that can be satisfied and it's a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God at work in you through Christ. The fifth beatitude, the spiritually compassionate, look in verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful means to be generous, to be forgiving, to be compassionate. It means to be long-suffering. It means how you treat people who vex you and who frustrate you and who may wrong you in various ways. I've noticed in pastoral ministry, though, that most people that I get to know, they really don't think that they're vengeful. And I think maybe the reason we don't think we're vengeful is because many of us in high school read the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> and so in our mind, vengeance is like a 40-year plan to kill somebody, you know. But vengeance actually on the day-to-day level is much more like giving someone the cold shoulder, ignoring them, changing the way you interact with them relationally, treating them as if they're dead, which is just a socially acceptable way to hurt somebody to get back at someone, to take vengeance on them. See, the Bible's telling us here that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy rather than seeking vengeance. Now the sixth quality, the spiritually pure. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity in heart has to do with what we desire, and then notice what we see is in the promise. So it has to do with what we want and what we want to look at And notice all of these future ones have a present and future quality, an ability to see God now in part, but to see God face to face in the future. Imagine you're in your four by four and you go mudding. I don't know if you've ever done that. (laughs) But you get in the Jeep and you go out there and you just tear it up and you're mudding and you're just spinning around and you're kicking up tracks and you're kicking up dirt everywhere. And all the dirt, of course, gets all over the windshield and it gets all over the back window. And as you're tearing it up, you're having a great time, but then eventually you go home. But later you realize that 300 yards from you was a shimmering lake on that warm summer day and it was beautiful and there was one of those big blow up trampolines and everyone was having a great time but you never saw it because of how much mud was on the windshield. See this verse is saying blessed are those who are pure in heart because they can see God both now and in the future. When the filth covers our eyes we can't see the glory of God in Christ. I don't want to miss here applicationally that this is a sight problem. 
Don't underestimate how impactful it is what you choose to watch, what you choose to look at, what you see. You see, it colors your ability to see God's glory. In fact, those who no longer can see God will not ever know him face to face. This is the promise in reverse. Now the seventh beatitude, blessed is the spiritual relation builder, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I wanna take a little more time on this one because it, it, it is so important in church life and in relational life. Ken Sandy has really helped me in his book, The Peacemaker, to help me know the difference between a peacemaker and two common alternatives. One common alternative is the peacebreaker. That's someone who is actually the cause of the conflict. Another alternative to being a peacemaker is what Sandy calls a peace faker. It's what I like to call a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is someone who says, oh, I don't want to get involved. It's, I'm sure it's not my business and, and I don't want to get involved into something else going on with somebody else. So notice the, the peacebreaker, he's causing conflict. The peacekeeper, he doesn't want to get involved if there seems to be conflict between other people. What Christ has actually called us to do is to be a peacemaker. To find two people where there is disharmony and disunity and schism and friction and to come in and see if we can help reconcile. So let me explain all three of these. Today, if you are the cause of a conflict between you and someone else, if you are a peace breaker, Jesus will tell us later in this very chapter that before you even go to worship, you need to go to that brother and sister and apologize and confess your fault to them. But today, if you're a peacekeeper, if you're one of those people who says, I don't want to get involved, you know, um, maybe it's not my business. I mean, I know that there's a problem here, but I don't want to get involved in it. I, the Bible would want us to understand that that actually is an excuse because of our own fear of how we might get too close to the flames. But sometimes we have to get kind of close and we may smell a little bit like smoke, but that's actually what Jesus did when he left heaven to come down and give himself vulnerably so that he could make peace between us and God. So the Bible calls us to be a peacemaker. Now, I want you to know, maybe it will help you know if you know what a sinner I am. Um, <laughs> I naturally, dispositionally would, if it wasn't for the grace of God, live my whole life in a fortress of solitude. If it was up to me, I would go home every day and I would listen to Bach and I'd make green tea and I would read a detective novel and I would just be left alone and chill. That is my natural disposition. Now God knows that I like avoiding conflict and I like avoiding things that are going on. So you know what God did? He called me to be a pastor <laughs> and then he gave me four children. And he did that because he knows that without that, I would never experience this sanctifying grace. So listen honestly from one sinner to another. If you don't like conflict and you don't like getting involved, I probably hate it more than you do. But Jesus has said, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Look at the promise. Because those are the ones called God's sons and daughters. Now look, I know in America, we grow up in a culture where you're like, I can be whatever I want to be when I grow up, which is kind of cute or whatever. But for thousands of years, nobody thought that way. So if you were born more than 100 years ago and your dad was a blacksmith, guess, guess what you're going to be when you grow up? 
right? Your dad was a farmer. Well, I hope you know how to use a plow, Jimmy, because that's your future, right? So all of human history, you were gonna be what your parents were. So when the Bible says you're called the sons of God, it means you carry on his quality in the way you interact with others. See, when we make peace, then that's God's character at work in us. Now the eighth beatitude, the spiritually-minded sufferer. I need to really slow down on this one and I hope you'll understand why. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oh, may the Lord help me explain why this is so important. All right, the word righteousness' sake. They're not persecuted for unrighteousness. They're persecuted for righteousness. Here's why this is so important. Our culture is quickly confusing the meaning of words. Here's the word courage. Here's the word brazenness. Let me explain why they're not the same. Almost every month we read some news article of someone who wants attention for something that they're calling attention to. I want you to know this about me. I want you to know that about me. And the news says, how courageous. But if what you're standing for isn't righteous, that's not courage, that's brazenness, which are not the same. It is not courage to stand up even against the grain, if what you're standing up for is wrong. Help me, I'll explain it this way. Imagine it's the 1940s and you're on a battlefield and you're fighting for the allies, which if I remember are the good guys. (laughs) You're fighting for them on a battlefield and all the other compatriots leave, but you step forward because you're standing for what's right. That is courage. Now, if you're on the other side of that same field and you're fighting for the Nazis and your compatriots have left you, and you step forward for evil, that is not not courage, that is brazenness. You see, it is only courage if you're suffering for righteousness sake. It is only commendable if you're going against the grain for what's good, not for what's evil. So now notice verse 11, and let me point out another common problem I even hear within the church. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely, right? So if you're one of those people and you're living in sin and people are telling you, you shouldn't be living in sin and your response is, hey, I know people are against me, but man, I'm gonna stand my ground and no matter what anybody says, I'm not gonna let people bring me down. Uh, No, you're you're not suffering falsely. You're suffering rightly. They're, They're trying to tell you, you're killing yourself, right? So it's not commendable If everyone's trying to warn you because you're on sinking sand, it's only commendable if what you're doing is right and you're engaged in hostility that is evil. So verse 12, this is only true of you if it's actual courage and it's actual righteousness. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for great your reward, notice the present tense, is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these are promises, these eight beatitudes are promises of the kingdom. Now they're given and the last and the first are in the present tense, but the middle are all in the future tense. And that's because right now we live in the period that is dawn. You've seen dawn, it's not quite night, it's not quite day, but it means day is coming. Jesus has given us these qualities to say the kingdom is coming in its fullness. It is dawning. 
These eight qualities, they describe someone who's in it. And if you're not in it, now's the time to be in it. But you still may think to yourself, well, why would I want to move from all the normal momentum of the kingdom of this world where so many people think like me and act like me? Why would I want to risk leaving that to live in this upside down countercultural kingdom? And I want to give you four quick reasons this morning. The first reason I would encourage you, plead with you, to run to Christ and his kingdom is because you should be thinking in terms of eternity. Like I just said, the dawn is coming. And when you see the first pangs of light, you need to realize that day is hastening on. And you must quickly realize that what you've been enjoying is all going to crumble. Think of how quickly the laughter of this world is going to turn to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think of how quickly the things in this world that have been filling and satisfying people dissipate and disappear. You see, all the things in this world, if you build your life on them, they fade. You build your life on your beauty, it fades. Build your life on relationships, a lot of them are gonna leave. Some of them are gonna die. Build your life on your acuity, it'll diminish. Build your life on your achievements and your records will one day be eclipsed and forgotten. Build your life on your power and you'll lose it. This is why Jesus in the next chapter of the sermon says, do not lay up your treasure on earth where moss and rust corrupt and thieves can break through and steal. But lay up your treasure in heaven where neither moth or rust can corrupt and thieves do not break through or steal. His point is this kingdom is crumbling, it's corroding and it's falling apart. But it's not just that the kingdom is falling apart. It's that when this kingdom of this world collapses, if you're on the outside, it's too late. This is why in Matthew 7, Jesus will say there's a narrow path that leads to life and there's a wide path that leads to destruction and there are few who find the narrow path and those left on the outside, it is a great calamity. There's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, there's a collapse of a house that's desperate. So let me plead with you this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, salvation genuinely is urgent. It is urgent that you respond to Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. So first, think in light of eternity. But now second, think in light of truth. I was talking to my neighbor yesterday, and I'm learning North Carolina, so I'm trying to figure this stuff out. I had like 4,000 acorns fall on my lawn (laughs) this year. And they're like growing now, and I'm going to have new oak trees if I don't rip these things up. So my lawn looks really bad, and I didn't know how this stuff works. But you know, at nighttime, my lawn looks great (laughs) because it's covered in darkness. See, the reason this world is called the kingdom of darkness is because it covers all the bad things. Think of how many awful, evil things happen day after day and nobody thinks about them. Nobody knows about them. Nobody makes much of them. You see, the light is coming and it's going to expose all of it. So live in light of truth, not a myth that helps you sleep. Live in light of reality, the truth that's coming. Jesus will say this in Matthew 7. There will be false prophets who come, but you will know them by their fruit. There will be false promises that come, but you will recognize them by their fruit. Live in light of reality. Now the third one. First, think in light of eternity. Second, think in light of truth. Third, think in light of satisfaction. See, the kingdom of this world, all the things that we think of normal, when you look at them more carefully, they're not as nice as they appear. Look at all the pain and suffering and cruelty in this world and think honestly, who in this world is actually satisfied? 
Who in this world truly feels fully complete? And the answer, of course, is no one. Only the kingdom of heaven satisfies. And yes, it's countercultural. God's people prize what this world pities, but what God has is what we need. And that's why Jesus will say in the end of this sermon, the wise man builds his house on the rock and the storm comes, but it stands. But the foolish man is building on sand that's crumbling while he's building and the collapse is great. But the fourth reason I want you to consider your need for the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of this world is the most direct one that I have to say, but you need to hear it. Here's the fourth reason you need to consider it because that kingdom, that revolution actually needs to start in you first. When Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew 4, verse 17, the first word he says is repent. And why does he say it? Do you remember? Repent, why? For the kingdom is at hand. Remember what he tells Nicodemus? Nicodemus, I know you're a moral guy. I know you're respectable. I know you're important in society, but you're not born again. And so you can't enter the kingdom. See, the most important revolution that you need to know about today is your own. You need to be born again from the inside out by the power of God through repentance. But let me explain the good news. This is not a work that you can achieve. This is a work that Christ achieved. So look at these eight Beatitudes now and think about the person of Christ. The first one, verse three, blessed are the poor. Remember Jesus, we read in Corinthians, he was rich, but he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Look in verse four, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus who mourned over the lostness of Jerusalem and who wept at Lazarus' tomb, he wept over the curse of sin. Verse five, blessed are the meek. No one, no one is as meek as Jesus who a bruised reed he would not break. Gentle and lowly he is known as, though he has the power of all eternity. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus on the cross said, I thirst, and they brought him nothing, but he satisfyingly found fulfillment in finishing the Father's will. Remember when he said in his earthly ministry, my food is to do the work of the Father who sent me. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful Christ who prayed for forgiveness for his crucifiers during his crucifixion. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus who was tempted in every way yet without sin. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus who came to reconcile God and man through the cost of his own blood on the cross. Verse 10 and 11, you think maybe we've been falsely persecuted. The son of God was crucified unjustly. But great is the reward in heaven because he opened its gates to us. So I'm gonna end with an ABC this morning for us. A, admit your need. Go back to verse three. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Please, I plead with you this morning. Do not go to God saying, well, Lord, I have something. Go to the Lord saying, Lord, I have nothing. And apart from you, I deserve nothing. You owe me nothing, but Christ alone is everything. See, some people are poor in spirit. Some people are still upper middle class in spirit. Lord, I've been fairly good. You owe me a good life. Lord, I've been a pretty decent guy. You owe me eternity. Lord, I shouldn't be sick. I've been a good person. No, no, you gotta go back to Lord, I am poor in spirit and I have no claim before you at all. I ask only for your grace and mercy.
So admit your need. But B, believe in Christ alone. In Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, Christ will say, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. The reason our hope is in Christ alone is because he's the only one who's perfectly fulfilled all righteousness and then taken our unrighteousness in his body. We cannot be saved because of something positive we've contributed. We are saved because of the work of the king alone who we rely on when we come poor in spirit. But now if you've received Christ and you're poor in spirit, then finally see, be controlled by Christ's kingdom values. As we go through this sermon together over the next couple of weeks, I wanna urge you to let Christ allow you to live unlike this world, to live upside down. This sermon is not like the way your neighbors live. It's not like the way your coworkers live. It may not be like the way your family lives. It may not be the way you've been living, but it's the way Christ can change us to live for his glory. It's the way that we can live differently with money than people who don't know the Lord, differently with relationships, differently with comfort, differently with control, differently with approval, and differently with power. Christ's kingdom is the only kingdom that doesn't come by someone's power and might, but comes by someone's willing death. All other kingdoms are revolutions taken by force or persuasion, but his is shared in the mountains. And then he comes down from the mountains, not to usher it in with 10,000 angels, but to instead not even plead his cause, but to willingly like a lamb go to slaughter for subjects like us who are rebels and have no right. But the king who lays down his life is the very quality of the kingdom that he can work in us for his glory. Let's pray for it now. Lord, with you we pray our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be his name. Lord, may his kingdom come at Emmanuel Baptist Church and may his will be done in Emmanuel Baptist Church and in our lives. Help us each day, Lord, to acknowledge our need for forgiveness of our sin, but our joy in Christ who paid for it all. Help us each day to acknowledge our need to forgive others who have sinned against us as God has so graciously forgiven us. Help us to rely on you for our daily bread and our needs and to not think that we have the ability in and of ourselves. We can lose everything we have in a moment. But Lord, we pray that yours will be the glory and the honor forever and ever. Perhaps someone is here or they're watching at home and the truth is they've not been poor in spirit. They've been rich in spirit. There's a reason in this passage that poor and poor in spirit could refer to either poor materially or poor spiritually and here's why. When someone is poor in terms of their earthly possessions, they are quicker to realize they need help. But when someone is rich in their earthly possessions, they are slow to think they need help. Lord, help us in this affluent age and in this affluent time to realize that apart from you, we are nothing. We ask you, Lord, to give us the grace to open our eyes to be poor in spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you oppose the proud, but you will give grace to the humble. That blessed are those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. There are many things in our life that we can mourn over. There are many things that are painful, but Lord, what a blessing it is to know that if we will come to Christ, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. 
So Lord, may each one of these virtues start to grow in us. They're all of grace. They're called blessings for a reason. We can't conjure them. But may the kingdom start to come in our own life and in our own heart. And may it have a difference in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in this community in such a way that the kingdom starts to grow for your glory. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.